Well, good morning, everyone. Um, this is going to be a real challenging lesson uh, for me to teach uh, for at least three reasons is that I'm going to try to cover 2,000 years in 35 minutes, basically. So I figured that's about 70 years a minute. And uh, so put your seatbelts on and be ready to go because we're about to take off. Uh, the other thing is uh, I'm not a historian. I love to read history, but I'm not a historian. Um, and so I'm not an expert on history, much less this topic. Okay, so uh, I just want you to know that I'm just sharing with you information because uh, most of us men don't like to read, so I'm sharing it mainly for you. The women will go get the book and read it, but uh, we won't, so I'm sharing it mainly for you. Uh, the other is, um, this is material that I'm not familiar with over the years. Matter of fact, a lot of these people I studied in school with my Bible degree, preaching, you know, Dwight Moody, uh, Jonathan Edwards. I mean, we, when it talked about preaching, uh, those are some of the men we studied, and nothing was ever mentioned of these things when we, we learned about them. Even Jerome, uh, Augustine, Origen, all those people that we studied in, in, uh, in biblical history, uh, nothing was mentioned. So, uh, so this is really, really very interesting. This is the book that I'm the material that I'm using from. So if you would like to get this book and order it and read everything for yourself, and here's what I want you to know. He's footnoted all of the comments that I'm quoting today from the sources. So he's not just written, you know, a devotional book referring to people. He, he refers to everything that, so you, if you want to go to the Lipscomb Library or Vanderbilt Library and read this stuff in more detail yourself, you can do that. It, and some, pl some places he even gives you the page number, not just the, the name of the book and the volume. So, uh, very, very interesting book. Uh, the word charismatic is come from the Greek and New Testament. Is char uh, we refer to it as uh, charismata. And it comes in 1 Corinthians 12 where it says there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are a variety of services, but the same Lord and a variety of of activities but the same God so when we're talking about the Holy Spirit we're talking about not just the Holy Spirit dwelling within but also the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and gifts that are bestowed upon us to bless other people not for our glory but for God's glory and to bless other people Jeannie last week taught as you can see over there on the board after basically there's three general views now about charismatic history uh, this the Gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased after the first century. Uh, the way I was taught is the, the, the apostles were able to lay hands on other people, but once those people died, the spiritual gifts went away. They ceased. And that's what they call secession that Jeannie talked about last week. There, some people still say it carried on until after the fourth century, and you'll see why as we look at history today. And, and another group of people say they never ceased and they're still available today. In the Churches of Christ, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, 9 when it came to talking about the ceasing of spiritual gifts. For we know only in part and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When the complete comes, that was, uh, the, that was interpreted as um, 
that we were given scripture. Once we're given scripture, it's been revealed to us, then we're, we know everything we need to know. We don't need someone to tell us prophecy or what knowledge and wisdom and those kinds of things because they've all been given and we have the word. Now, in, uh, back over the years when I was growing up, uh, historical criticism was just still starting to come on the scenes. And so we have some more reality about scriptures today than we did back then. Uh, and so, but, but the bottom line is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you the four views that, that, are, that are used on this verse. But the bottom line is, there is no definitive statement of gifts ceasing in scripture. It's up to you to choose what you want to believe in history. I'm just saying that because that's where I am. Um, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine who is charismatic, and we were talking about this and about speaking in tongues and different things. And, and when I first started talking to him about it, he says, I got a little pushback. And I said, I'm, I, I, you know, it doesn't bother me that that's what you do. That's, that, I'm just, I just want to hear your experience. And he says, well, let me tell you this. I don't debate this based on theology. I don't debate this based on doctrine. I base this on what I have personally experienced. And what I experienced, nobody can tell me different. And so I thought that was a good statement. Um, and there are people that I know that I, I'm, I'm a, the suspicious type when it comes to the charismatic movement in general because I believe it's been manipulated and taking people taking advantage of it and that's been proven you know investigative reports have been done and but I don't think I don't believe we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater um, I have a son-in-law who's an atheist uh, when he and my daughter married um, he was very active in church he has wonderful parents there he's a preacher and preacher's wife and uh, and if they lived near us, we would be close friends to them. Uh, but what he has a tendency to do is throw all Christians in the same basket. And I said, Daniel, I don't burn clinics. I don't protest angrily in front of a clinic anywhere. I, I don't say hateful things about the LBGT community. You know, I, you can't throw me in the same basket because we're, we're, we're not the same. And that's the way this is. Just because you, you're going to see, as uh, Andy refers to them as charlatans, that, uh, that abuse something, but that's always been the case. Has it not been? Jesus, what about the guy who claimed to cast people out in the name of Jesus? And, and what did the spirits do? They beat the tar out of him because he had no authority. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen on this end much. We see people taking advantage of other people. But uh, four views of uh, this is that the idea of the arrival of perfection and cessation of the gifts point to the full revelation of doctrine, which is to be found in the New Testament scriptures. Now, uh, I got these from the First uh, Corinthians commentary by College Press, Richard Oster, it, and he's a professor at Harding Graduate School, Dr. Richard Oster. Um, 
Two is the concept of perfection is associated with the acquisition of love by the church. This was a big one of, uh, of origin, I believe. Um, yeah, I think so. And then a closely related interpretation is that which believes that the mature church no longer needs the contributions made by these gifts of the Spirit. And then the fourth is that the gifts are a part of the ministry of God to strengthen the church until the second coming of Christ. And, and Richard even said, the reality is you cannot not deny this. Now, I don't think he would come out necessarily. He didn't in, in his commentary to say that he believed in those things. But what he did say was, is that this was definitely an open door. Okay? Now, uh, what's the difference? When you're talking about Pentecostal and Charismatic, the Pentecostal movement began in 1901, but basically because of them saying that you, you can only know if you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit is if you speak in tongues. And so they rejected everybody else. So the Pentecostal movement was rejected by the existing churches. And, but since that time, over 740 new Pentecostal <coughs> denominations, even ones who claim to be led by the Spirit, can't stay together. Are you with me? It's always been. Charismatic movement goes back to 1960 by Dennis Bennett, rector. When I say Pentecostal and charismatic, I'm talking about when these terms came to be common use. Okay, uh, And uh, this was the Episcopal Church. But because their approach was different than the Pentecostals, the charismatic movement achieved a remarkable degree of acceptance in the traditional churches where it is often referred to as a renewal. Isn't that interesting? And you'll notice that Andy refers to himself as a conservative charismatic. He doesn't call himself a Pentecostal. Now, I have a friend I play golf with. He's Pentecostal all the way. And without me asking him yesterday, he said, well, you know you have to get the Holy Spirit if you speak in tongues. I thought, how interesting, after all these years. Then there's a third wave, or neo-charismatic movement, that produced thousands of new denominations, showing the increasing momentum and power of each. And they had phenomenal growth. Uh, if you're trying to take notes, uh, we're going to put this PowerPoint on the Dropbox. If you do not have uh, an email address on our Dropbox, um, can you hand this back to them? Uh, give us your email address. We'll put you on there so you can get that. All right. Timeline of uh, charismatic history, A.D. 33 to 100, the Apostolic Church. And keep in mind, the church was under great persecution during this time. So just as Jesus was criticized for his healing and charismatic activity, uh, so was the church itself. We're going to pick up, since we already know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that no one struggles with the Bible's issues of miracles. We all believe that they exist. Uh, A.D. 100 to 325, persecution continued. Uh, Justin Martyr was regarded as the foremost apologist of the second century. And he says in his dialogue with Trifo, for the prophetical gifts remain even with us, even to, to the present time. Later in the same work, he says, now it's possible to see among us women and men who possess the gifts of the Spirit. This is where I'm shipping, going into fifth gear, okay? I was in fourth, and now I'm about to go into fifth. All right? Then you have Arrhenius against heresies for, certainly, for some certainly do truly drive out devils so that those who have been thus cleansed from evil spirits frequently believed in Christ and joined themselves to the church. 
and other foreknowledge of things to come from the raising of dead and speaking in tongues. And he's, uh, he's, his fight, fight was against Gnosticism, which basically uh, based it, that you had to be able to know of Jesus, his physical struggle, they, they, uh, that he wasn't real. Um, the Tertullian uh, was converted in 192, and he relates specific instances of healings and deliverance from demonic oppression. He includes that heaven knows how many distinguished men to say nothing of the common people have been cured either of the devils or of their sicknesses. Another is Origen, a prolific and influential writer. If you read anything of church history, you'll read of Origen, okay? Uh, I'm not going to, uh, well, he, he was the first early church father to indicate that supernatural ministry was becoming less common. And this is, this is a part I want you to hold on to, okay? He points to the abundance of supernatural signs in the ministry of Christ in the apostolic church. Then he remarks, but since that time, these signs have diminished. He cites the lack of holiness and purity among the Christians of his day as the reason. Now, every time we see a renewal later on in history, that's going to be a key point. Are you with me? That's when the Holy Spirit is going to kick into high gear again. And... The decline of spiritual gifts in the first charismatic renewal. Spiritual gifts continue to be manifested after the first century as institutionalism increasingly dominated the life and ministry of the church. However, their prevalence and influence gradually diminished. Institutionalism is an, emphasis, is, is an emphasis on organization at the expense of other factors. And the church, such an emphasis or overemphasis on organization always comes at the expense of the life and freedom of the spirit. And, um, and the, one of the reasons that's so important here is because, and, when, and we'll get to Constantine here in just a moment, when Constantine came in and made the church one of the state, then everybody started coming to church for political and social reasons. And when it was there for political and social reasons, then people truly weren't always seeking God. Are you with me? And, and so it, it brings the church down. And that's when you see people taking action to try to bring the, the vibrance and the passion of God and passion of Christ back into the church and into their own lives. Okay? Uh, now we're going to go to 325 to 600. Uh, then this is uh, Constantine. And he was converted in 312. Interestingly enough, he made the church... the the church, the national religion before he was even a Christian. And when he died, his sons picked it up and carried it on. And it got to the point where if you weren't a Christian, you, you would be persecuted. In other words, that's when this idea started kicking in that unless you joined everybody else, you're in trouble. Are you with me? And so, as a result, the churches began to be frequently by those seeking the political and social advantages that identifying with the church now offered. So, basically, if I'm going to have a successful business, I'm going to go rub shoulders with people at church. Or if I want to be in a political position, then I'm going to rub, go rub shoulders with people at church. That's basically what this amounted to. These developments had devastating ramifications for the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the people of God. The ones that have flowed spontaneously among the whole congregation were now bound to the ecclesiastical office and transmitted by a sacramental act. All right, monasticism. 
uh, when, since the church had become so involved in political and social and it had become uh, so watered down that people got sick of it and what we call monastics would go out and find a cave somewhere and live there and live the ascetic life. Um, and there, initially in 320 they were all by themselves but around uh, towards later on after 320 they started gathering in community. This is where we get the word monastery. People would gather in communities and they would be self-sustaining and they would live by a rule of life which we'll look at in just a moment. Anthony is the first famous monastic. He's called the founder of monasticism and he is filled with accounts of the supernatural. According to Athenius, which was a disciple of Anthony, uh, many people from all walks of life visited Anthony in the desert seeking his prayers and wisdom. He said to have possessed the gifts of discerning of spirits and often knew things supernaturally. His prayer brought healing to the sick and deliverance from the demonized. Um, now this is what was interesting to me. This is guy, this guy's way out in the desert. He didn't have a PR person. He didn't have announcements on the radio say, hey, if you want healing, come out to the desert. He didn't have billboards along the side of the highway. People met him. He changed their life. And they went and talked about it. And this is what makes this, to me, so very powerful. Um, then you have Ambrose, who was a bishop of Milan. Uh, and a lot of these guys grew up very wealthy. And when they read scripture, and where Jesus says, sell everything and give it to the poor, they literally did that. Uh, on one occasion in Milan, reports Augustine, Augustine was converted by Ambrose. Everybody, everybody has studied any church history has heard, heard of Augustine. A throng gathered at the tomb of two martyrs. In a dream, the location of the hidden remains of martyrs had been revealed to Ambrose. As a crowd gathered, a blind man miraculously received his sight. Although he lived and ministered during a time of spiritual decline, Ambrose, in his writings, expresses an awareness of and openness to the supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. Jerome uh, became first, first became a Christian in 360, but if you ever heard of uh, the history of uh, Bible translation, he's the one that brought the, the, uh, the Vulgate. Uh, it was a Catholic Latin version of the Old Testament. He became an astute scholar and a lover of classical learning. He indicates that miracles are within the grasp of all who believe according to the words of Jesus. Once again, you can go find the original sources for all of these. Okay, Augustine, uh, after his conversion, became the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. He became a very influential writer. As a matter of fact, he's the one that initially got the cessation idea going. He gets the main credit for that in the Protestant movement. But later in his life, however, Augustine shows great interest in the supernatural and relates many miraculous incidents in his own life and the lives of others. In his work, The City of God, one chapter is titled Concerning Miracles Which Were Wrought in Order That the World Might Believe in Christ and Which Cease Not to Be Wrought Now That the World Does Not Believe. What a title of a chapter. <laughs> anyway, that would have been basically the chapter in my book. Uh, uh, the other is Benedict of Nursia. Uh, I'm a... Uh, and in my study and research under uh, spiritual disciplines, 
Benedict is a huge figure. Uh, the rule of life, the rule of Benedict, is where they would get up, they would get up every morning, they would pray, they would worship, they would go work, they come, that have prayer, worship at lunch, and, and pray and meditate, and then they would go to work, and then they'd come back and do it at supper time, and then they would pray and meditate and read, and then they would have prayer at midnight. They did this every single day. And uh, it provided an organizational pattern for life, work and worshiping, communal monastic life. It became one of the most important plans for monastic life in the Middle Ages through Europe. <coughs> Gregory the Great, who was who's one of the popes, once again grew up with wealthy parents, but in his dialogue, uh, Gregory records many miracles of which he had personal knowledge, including the raising of the dead. Then you, we go to 600, the 7th century, up to the starting of the 16th century. Uh, this is where the, even developments when monasticism, uh, Jerry Jones, when I was in uh, school at Harding, says every movement becomes a monument. I don't know if y'all have ever heard that before. But even the monastics, after, after a few years, had become such a movement that the preoccupation, uh, let's see. Oh, here it is. By AD 600, however, monasticism itself was losing much of its spiritual life and vitality. The ascetic lifestyle, which had emerged from a desire for the immediate presence of Christ, gradually drifted into much legalism and spiritual pride. As the monasteries became wealthy through community thrift and ownership, laziness, avarice, and gluttony also crept in. Okay. But a resurgent, a genuine spiritual renewal began in the 11th century, and it breathed new life into the church at large and into the monastic movement. And this is where the Cistercians came in, the Franciscans and the Dominicans and uh, different orders within the Catholic Church. And this is uh, Bernard of Clairvaux uh, in this 11th century. Bernard gained recognition because of his many miracles that occurred in his ministry. It was reported from all quarters sick persons were conveyed to him by friends who sought from him a cure. The lame were healed and the people were delivered from countless diseases and infirmities. Then you have Dominic, which the Dominicans came from, reports of many visions and miracles. Francis of Assisi, where the uh, Franciscan order came from. Uh, one of the practices that I studied a lot in graduate school was Lectio Divina, and this came from Francis of Assisi. Uh, and when most of the people there were illiterates, and so they, they spent a lot of time listening to the Word. And so the idea of Lectio Divina is letting the Word pour over you. You don't go to scriptures to get something, you, you sit to receive the idea. Okay, and uh, he, um, this is one of the orders, Dominican as well, that in the monastic life, they didn't just stay in their communities, they went out to preach the gospel in various places uh, around the world. Okay, the next is the 16th century up to 1700. Uh, Martin Luther, he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, when he first uh, in his early age, he strongly opposed the church's abuse of authority uh, and forgave. But uh, early in his ministry, uh, he was more of a sensationist. And he believed he had learned under the Spirit's guidance, but later on he, he came to the point where he believed he had learned under the Spirit's guidance, prophetic utterances, 
and prayed for divine healings. In spite of his obvious belief in the immediate presence and the power of the Spirit, Luther and many other reformers of his day must share the blame for the widespread belief in a theory of sensation of miracles. But Sauer's work in German, A History of the Christian Church, page 406, describes Luther as a prophet, evangelist, speaker in tongues, interpreter, and a one person endowed with all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Anabaptist. Um, this is where the Baptists come from. That's their, their roots, their grounds. Basically, it means uh, that you're baptized as an adult. That it was very common up to this time where people baptized infants. And they preach strongly against baptizing infants, that if you're going to become a Christian, you've got to become a Christian as an adult. Well, they were severely persecuted by Catholics and other Protestants. Lynchings, uh, I mean, if you were going to be an Anabaptist, you were going to suffer for it, period. You couldn't sit on the fringe. It was going to cost you something. In reaction to the ecclesiastical system of the Roman Catholicism, the Anabaptists rejected an hierarchical structure of leadership and emphasized that ministry was the responsibility of the entire congregation. Does that sound familiar? What do we call it? Ministry of the priesthood. Ministry of the people. This is where these roots started. And then Luther restored the idea of priesthood of all believers, and then the Anabaptists restored the idea of the prophethood of all believers. And... Uh, but here's the interesting, in addition to Anabaptists, the free church concept influenced Puritan, Separatists, Baptists, and Quakers um, in the process. Uh, Gregory Fox, <coughs> from the Quakers, um, from childhood he expressed a particular sobriety yearning for spiritual truth. Unable to find help he needed from the priests of the state church and other religious leaders, he was at a point of total despair when he heard a voice say, there is one even Christ Jesus that can speak to thy condition. And this impressive 16th century movement was indeed a charismatic movement. When you think of Quakers today, you don't think of charismatics. Have, have any of you been to a Quaker service? The first 30 minutes is sitting in silence. The whole idea, main, the center point around the Quaker worship is contemplation and reflection. Literally, when someone is moved to speak by the Spirit, they speak. It's really a very interesting, uh, very interesting group, okay? Um, then you have, uh, this is Count Zinzendorf. I had to say it slowly because I don't think I could say it. He started the Moravian Revival. Uh, he was real, uh, re reared by pious parents and was influenced by the leaders of the pious movement but a spiritual renewal that had arisen within German Lutheranism in the late 17th century was a reaction to the intellectual staleness that had risen within Lutheranism 100 years after Luther. And it was a time that miraculous healings and other spiritual gifts began to be uh, manifest in their midst. And then we're going to come to 1700 to 1900. Then you have John Wesley. These are some of the ugliest men you've ever seen, aren't you? <laughs> I'm going, really? I don't know if I could watch you preach. I'd have to close my eyes. And he, lo he looks like he has the joy of the Lord, doesn't he? I'm going, really? Um, 
Some of you may, because of devotional books, know the story of John Wesley, uh, but he and his brother Charles began a movement uh, that became known as the Methodists. Every evening from 6 to 9, they met for prayer and Bible study, and every Wednesday and Friday, they fasted. Once every week, they received communion. This rigorous religious discipline did not, however, bring peace to Wesley's soul. And uh, he had an experience over time where, uh, I can't remember, Craig, can you tell me, we were just talking about this before class, where when he was praying to God, asking for his spirit, and he said, and then this warm feeling came over me. And it was within that that he came to believe in the inner working of the Holy Spirit. Huh? He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and the assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sin and given me and saved me from all sin and death. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And so, encouraged by George Whitfield, he began preaching about, but um, they said as an early Methodist leader who did speak in tongues and who left a clear record of his experience was Thomas Welch a friend and colleague. He wrote in his journal, an influence of the Spirit wrought so powerfully upon me that my joy was beyond expression. This morning the Lord gave me a language I knew not of, raising my soul to Him in a wonderful manner. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Craig, you need this hairstyle. Um, basically, although he welcomed and defended outward manifestations such as crying, groaning, and falling under the power, Edwards stopped short of accepting the validity of spiritual gifts such as prophecy, tongues, and miracles. As a staunch Calvinist, he believed that these extraordinary gifts had ceased with the apostolic church. From that perspective, he tells a man whom he believed was deluded into thinking that a revival was the beginning of the glorious times of the church spoken of in Scripture. And so you see that he kind of got up to that point, but he didn't actually believe it. Uh, later on, a friend of the Wesleys, <laughs> I can't look at that one without laughing. <laughs> Thought, it must have been snowing outside because he had his earmuffs on. <laughs> I thought, I wish I had visited with Craig before this because he had had a comment about every one of these images. Sure <laughs> George Whitfield was a very gifted preacher. Signs and wonders accompanied his preaching. The power of God would move spontaneously throughout the congregations as he spoke. Following his message, further manifestations of the Spirit occurred. On one occasion, after preaching a huge, to a huge throng gathered outdoors, Whitfield gathered the crowd and noted in the amazing response. And this is uh, stated that the great awakening that many of uh, the charismatic churches experienced. Then the re- just a quick point on him, just it's a point of interest. Um, there was a question as to who was more well-known and popular in history at this time. Was it George Washington or George Whitfield? Yeah. They were like contemporaries, um, and he, he was maybe considered to be even more influential than George Washington wow. at the time. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's great. With that hairdo, you would be famous. <laughs> Uh, I know. The revival on the East Coast was tame compared to the events caused the Allegheny Mountains on the Western Frontier. Uh, you have James McGreedy, uh, a Presbyterian. Here's another thing I want you to know. This is not, 
just from a particular group of people like the Catholics or the Presbyterians or the Episcopals or the Anabaptists. I mean, it's coming from everywhere. Are you with me? That's what's interesting about this too. They, they devoted themselves to every Saturday and Sunday to prayer and fasting. And after four years, nothing happened when suddenly a revival broke out that eventually changed the course of the nation. It started in a weekend meeting at McCready's Red River Church. The presence, the presence of the Spirit was so intense during the first two days of the meeting that the congregation was reduced to tears several times. And then if you know anything about the Churches of Christ uh, history, uh, Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell were one of our founding fathers. Uh, Alexander Campbell uh, eventually went out, who was more of a cessationist. As you can see here, Barton W. Stone was more on the charismatic side of things. Uh, but beginning on August 6, 1801, uh, they started conducting camp meetings. Uh, he said one person counted 1,143 vehicles parked in the area, and estimates of those in attendance range from 10,000 to 25,000. James Crawford, one of the ministers present, reported about 3,000 being slain in the spirit. So the second great awakening was, in many respects, a charismatic revival bringing renewal to the churches and institution of the frontier America. Then you have Edward Irving. Uh, and he was native to Scotland. Uh, he preached a series on baptisms. He noted traditionally that the work of the Holy Spirit had been considered an inward gift of sanctification because the outward gift of power, according to some, had ceased with the passing of the apostles. He went on to say, however, that he could see no reason why the church could not still receive the complete gift of the Spirit, including the gift of power. This, he said, had become obvious to him from the plain meaning of Scripture. Irvin was supposedly was supported by a majority of his congregations, but because of a few key figures, they opposed him, and so they excommunicated him out of the Church of Scotland, and so he began what became known as the Catholic Apostolic Church. A standing sign of spirit baptism was speaking in tongues, which this is the beginning roots of Pentecostalism. Then you have into the 20, uh, 20th century. Uh, the 19th century forerunners, um, this was an attempt to recover the religious fervor of the previous century. In addition, a concerted effort was extended to the recovering of faith of the primitive church and the particular, in particular opened the door for the miraculous gifts of the Spirit to be manifest. What, let's, not looking at this, but you look back at our history, what was, what was the drive for the churches of Christ? Back to the scripture. We wanted to restore. We're a restoration church. We wanted to restore the New Testament church. Isn't that the same thing that's been reoccurring all through history? We want to restore what we feel like has been lost. And so we're sitting here today because we're the fruit of those kinds of movements. And, those, and we may or may not have been involved any other way. Uh, then you had Phoebe Palmer. She was the wife of a New York physician. Uh, she was never ordained, but she was the most influential female theologian in the church has yet produced up to that time. She had Tuesday, night, uh, Tuesday meetings in their home and was attended by at least four Methodist bishops as well as by many other prominent churchmen, both within and without the Methodist tradition. Healing, speaking in tongues for Palmer, this sort of experimental revivalism 
represented a resurrection of primitive Christianity and primitive Methodism. Then you had Charles Finney, another uh, famous preacher. Uh, he, at the time of his conversion, Finney had an experience that he later identified as baptism in the Holy Spirit. He recalled that he wept aloud with joy and love and literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my soul, a possible reference to speaking in tongues. He did not practice the prayer of healing, but reports of people being healed were given. A.J. Gordon, um, that's an interesting name. Uh, how do you say that, his first name? A.J. A.J. Aram. Yeah. Good old A.J. Uh, <laughs> in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Gordon clearly delineated charismatic theology by identifying the baptism of the Holy Spirit as an, as an endowment of power subsequent to conversion. In his discussion of spirit baptism, he also mentions the manifestation of tongues at Pentecost and the manifestation of tongues and prophecies when Paul laid his hands on a new Ephesian believers. D.L. Moody, another famous preacher, uh, he uh, embraced the teaching of the baptism of the Holy Spirit subsequent to in the latter part of his life. He claimed that his life and ministry were changed forever as a result of this experience. It all began when two women in the church in Chicago set themselves to pray for him that he would receive this experience. As they prayed, his hunger for God increased until one day in 1871, he experienced God in a way that radically changed his life. And... Uh, he went on to say, he says, I could not describe it. I seldom referred to it. It is almost too sacred of an experience to name. Paul had an experience which he never spoke for 14 years. I can say that God revealed himself to me and I had an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were, were not different. I did not present any new truths, yet hundreds were converted. I would not be placed back where I was before that blessed experience for all the world. It was be as the small dust of the balance. Kind of interesting confession. Tongues and Pentecostal language, uh, once again, to restore primitive Christianity to the churches through the renewal of Pentecostalism experience and an accompanying of a new age of the Holy Spirit, the restorationist theme. And then you had others, uh, Zuzu Street, <coughs> Zion City, Charles Parham, William Seymour, and so forth. It was around the world in India, South America, Europe, China, all, all over the world. Uh, then the, more along the lines of the Pentecostal um, side of the breakdown, you have the Churches of God in Christ, which is predominantly a black denomination, Assemblies of God, which is primarily white, Oneness or Unitarian, Pentecostal, and then several Wesleyan holiness groups already in existence before 1900, such as the Church of God. Pentecostal holiness. Then the healing revival, uh, names that you'll know as well. Uh, then you had Dennis Bennett, Catholic charismatic revival. Uh, then you had the Pentecostal movement back in 77 and the third wave back in 1983. And then uh, I wanna close out with just some uh, uh, special, special notes from my perspective. Uh, Spiritual gifts continued into the second and third centuries. And, and there's too much witness of the 
that could you could argue otherwise. So I would I believe that if you were in the second and third century, you would say there had to be workings of the spirit because it was it was common knowledge. There was nothing in history that says it ceased during that time. Okay? The other is special gifts have always been controversial. We think they're controversial today. They've always been controversial. It's cost people their lives. The other, spiritual gifts did not come from one predominant faith tradition. Like when the Holy Spirit moves, you never know where it's coming or where it's going or where it's going to show its, its, its face. Um, gifts seem to play a significant role in revitalizing a declining church. Something that only God can initiate. Man cannot create. God, man cannot um, sustain without God. And then last is igniting the church to greater passion for Christ and reaching the lost. Okay, I'm going to finish out with this thought and we can, we can visit for a couple of minutes if you want to. We don't have a lot of time, but uh, I didn't expect to have a lot of discussion today anyway. Uh, but... I'm, we, I, I love truth and transparency, okay? I haven't gotten all this figured out myself. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. I grew up in the churches of Christ. I love the churches of Christ. I've been blessed by the churches of Christ. My passion for the Word of God is because I grew up in the churches of Christ. Um, my passion to serve people is because I grew up in the churches of Christ. I watched my mom and dad serve people my entire life. And if I'm, and my dad and I, in our last days, did not agree on much scripturally. But if I was going to ever pattern my life after a shepherd, it would be my dad. Nobody cared for people better than he did. Hundreds came to his funeral telling me story after story after story of how he was at their hospital bed, he was at the funeral, he was at their house. He, he shared with them scripture. You know, so I have a, I have a deep love um, for the church. Um, so, but the concept of us being the only ones going to heaven hit me one day like that's the most arrogant thing in the world that anybody could say. Who has the right to say they have a corner on any market? And I used to have great confidence in myself and what I believe and the older I get the less I fear. I fear myself more than I fear anybody else. Are you with me? I'm, I'm not a doomsday person. But the Lord has taught me that I can deceive myself. My blind spots can destroy me. And the only person I have to depend on is God and Jesus and the Spirit. That's all I've got. And that's all I believe. Now, my soul still fights it. But the older I get, the more I realize that I have, I have accepted a perspective that I don't believe is, uh, is flexible. Are you with me? So all I ask you to do is that as you think about this and as you reflect on this, we're not heading in a direction that says, if you're not speaking in tongues, you're not a Christian. I want to put you at ease. Okay? We're going to give you a chance to experience some of these things. 
I haven't spoken in tongues yet, so here I am talking about speaking in tongues. But I know people who do. And um, so as we talk about these gifts, like the gift of prophecy we'll probably do here in class. But when it comes to things like speaking in tongues and other things, we're probably going to offer another time that if you want to try to experience that, you can. But if you don't, you don't have to. Are you with me? So we're, we're not bringing this in saying you've got to believe this or you're not a believer. That's, you, you missed the whole, the whole thing. Every day's a journey for us. Jeannie and I want to be able to experience everything that God has to offer to the fullest. Are you with me? And, and that's what we want you to have, but at your own pace. On your own journey. And whether you go back to where you say, I'm a sensationist, that's fine. That is no problem because God's still working. And I don't mean that in a, in a sarcastic way. He's worked in our lives whether we knew it or not. Right? So it's not, it's not based on my faith or what I believe. Thank goodness. Thank goodness for the grace of God that He continues to give even when we don't believe. So our salvation is not going to depend upon your stance of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? But I want you to be open to it, but I don't want you to feel threatened from what we're trying to do as we teach about it, okay? And so, because we want everybody to be at ease and everybody to feel comfortable uh, with all that. Anybody have any particular questions um, or I, thoughts you want to share? John? Something that's been curious to me for a very long time is what is speaking in tongues? On the day of Pentecost, it was obviously a foreign language. People say we hear them in our language. They listed like a dozen different languages that were being spoken. I mean, great if I had something I could speak German or French or Italian, or is it simply what I've heard people say is a, is a, a spiritual language that is making something that only yeah. God would understand and we don't. There's two types of speaking in tongues in Scripture. One is in Acts 2 when they talk about language. 1 Corinthians 14 uses a special word called glossolalia. And it's, a, it's, it's a, a God language. So that's where they get the, the second one. So you have tongues can be... Right. And I could have shared with you quotes where people actually spoke in another cultural language that they did not know before, um, which was interesting mm -hmm. to me. Um, okay. There's an interesting read called Pagan Christianity. Uh, I recommend it highly. It's such a fun book that makes you mad when you first start into it, and then as you go through it, it you start laughing. Uh, it's primarily uh, uh, how we, and uh, in, in a lot of the things that we do, do them primarily because of tradition and tradition only. Uh, and, and Constantine's uh, influence on what we do today, and uh, not only in the churches of Christ, but throughout the you know the biggies. That's right. So uh, it's it's really a, What's the title uh, of it again? Uh, Pagan Christianity. Pagan Christianity. I'm sorry, I can't remember the author. That's okay. We can find anything on Amazon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just struck me while you were talking. How in the Old Testament, I've always heard and seen when you study it, how God would bring a prophet.
that whenever the people would fall into sin and be distracted and he would bring some kind of event and I thought wouldn't it be interesting if that's exactly what he does in the New Testament he just does it through his spirit to create that revival or that redirection or that refocus on him because mm-hmm. that kind of seemed like a recurring theme from mm-hmm. what you were saying yeah that's an excellent point. Yeah, but when the word was fully delivered, we didn't need God's help anymore. <laughs> and those of you who have not met Carrie, <laughs> he is not sarcastic at all. I'll tell you what I told you before class. I think this stuff is this is great, and but you are not going to be invited to the free heart. That's right. Well, I was supposed to speak at Pepperdine Lectures, and when we planned a church, they, they rescinded my offer. <laughs> so I'm used to being rejected. Because <laughs> it wasn't going to be a church of Christ. That's why they rejected it. I'd like to share a testimony. Okay. Um, I'm a, a child that is pretty much an orphan, and I uh, was uh, raised Catholic. Uh, I got saved under Morris Rameau, and uh, I went to hungry and thirsting for the Word of God. And I uh, found uh, a church uh, that uh, really believed in prayer. And they did uh, have the moving of the gifts of the Spirit. And I hungered and thirst as a child. I'm so childlike. Um, it was when I was uh, doing service for him with the babies that my heavenly language came to me because hmm. I would hold these babies and felt them. And it's a powerful thing when you feel from your gut the groanings and crying out because we in our thoughts do not know how to pray. And the more we surrender ourselves to him we feel this liberty of his power in us and uh, I've been walking now uh, since 72 9 11 1972 and uh, I felt uh, his power and I feel uh, at this moment I need him more than ever and just hope by the grace of God, I'll see him soon. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's great. I love it. I know in some sense, I know it's time for us to go. I know in some sense for some of you, you're sitting there scared to death, and you're, others, you're going, yeah, but what if? That's very normal. That's very normal. That's, that's just walking by faith. So we just take it in stride. Ask God to lead you. Ask God to direct you. Don't depend on me. Don't depend on anybody else. Just, just focus on God. Okay? Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we just praise your great and holy name. And Father, we've always believed that you worked, but we've, because of our own perception of things, we've put limits on that. And so, Father, we pray that you will help us to see the mightiness and the activity of where you're working and how you are working and help us to overcome the blind spots that we have that have been predetermined by our culture 
Help us to see you with eyes we've never seen before. Help, we, help us feel you in ways we've never felt you before. And help us to mainly draw closer to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.